Well, we're going to be tackling 2 Samuel here tonight, so you'll want to get a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, slip out, grab one from the back table. You can uh, see what's going on there and follow along with us. Um, so 1 Samuel dealt primarily with the sad saga of Saul. And really, 1 Samuel was Saul's pursuit over the up-and-comer David, who was God's real chosen vessel of leadership. Saul was the people's person, the people's choice, but David was God's choice. And so we see first time of this conflict going on, uh, based on really Saul's jealousy, um, his, his arrogance. And so Saul was a man that was hot after David's you know, trail because he's looking to take David out and just really clear the way for him to continue to lead in his own style, right? But Saul's a man that continued to succumb to pride, to jealousy, to dishonesty, even before, you know, Samuel, the prophet, before God. And as 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul, 2 Samuel now begins to really record for us the ascent of David now to the throne. And though David was a man after God's own heart, he was a man... Every bit vulnerable to sin. And that's what we're going to be seeing here in 2 Samuel begin to unfold. He's a man that couldn't afford to let his guard down. But it's what we see happening here in, in 2 Samuel. So the outline for, the Sam, for 2 Samuel is really quite simple. Breaks down this way. First 10 chapters is the triumphs of David. But then chapters 11 to 24, the troubles of David. So we're going to see the triumphs of David tonight and then the troubles of David. Now, chapter 1, uh, we get a bit more of a fuller picture from what we saw at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of 1 Samuel. Because, like I said, 1 Samuel ends with the, the death of, uh, of Saul and his sons. But now, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we don't have a conflicting report, but we just get a bit more of a, a fuller picture as to what really went down. Because we know they're in battle against the Philistines. The Philistines struck uh, Saul, you know, and, and he went down, but he wasn't quite out. He was wounded and he calls for his armor bearer to just, you know, pierce him through the sword, but the armor bearer wouldn't do it because he's like, man, God's not, I can't kill the king or else I'm going to be dead meat myself. So Saul falls on his own, own sword and says he died. But now we read here in verse, uh, six of chapter one, hopefully you're there. Chapter six, oh, sorry, chapter one. Verse 6, and it says this. Then the young man who told him... So there's a young man that comes to David. Let me fill you in the picture a bit more. Young man comes to David now who's been on the, on the scene. He passes by Saul and he reports this. The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So he answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I, I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So this man is speaking to David, reporting to David what he's witnessed out on the battlefield. And he's witnessed Saul who had fallen on a sword like we saw at the end of chapter um, 31 of, of 1 Samuel. And 
Saul had fallen sore, but he wasn't quite dead. And now this man comes. But what's interesting is now we see the fuller picture that Saul ends up literally dying by the hands of an Amalekite. An Amalekite. And it's very interesting because here's what Saul was told to do in his ministry was to go up against the Amalekites and to utterly destroy them all. Don't leave any remaining. To utterly wipe out the, Mal- the Amalekites, the Amalekites. And we read in First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted the medium for guidance. What was Saul's unfaithfulness here? He, he died, it says, for his unfaithfulness. And his unfaithfulness was because he failed to follow God's word in wiping out the Amalekites. Remember the story there. It's in First Samuel 15, where he's told to go out, but he leaves the king and some of their best livestock. And, and so some of the Amalekites were left over and they continue on. And now we see that it's an Amalekite that ends up delivering that death blow to Saul. The Amalekites, this is important because the Amalekites showed scripture is really a picture of our flesh. And the lesson here is so vital for the life of the believer. And it's this, that we need to deal with and put to death the flesh in our own lives. The flesh here is speaking of those bodily appetites that go against the nature and the character of God. Our mind can become so distracted by and focused on these things that it keeps us from moving forward in the things of God. It's there, the flesh, to, to try to trip you up and bring you down and be that vehicle that the enemy can begin to poke and prod and start to stir us on to do his work rather than the Lord's work. And so Saul doesn't carry out God's word, wipe out the Amalekites. And he ends up falling because of an Amalekite. And it's a, it's a good reminder for us that if we're not willing to do business with our own flesh and put to death the things of the flesh that are not of the Lord, then those things continue to breathe and have life and begin to have its way oftentimes in life that leads you away from the Lord and eventually brings you down. Well, we continue on now, seeing here in in chapter 1, how David responds to the death of Saul. Now, it's interesting because the Amalekite thought he's doing David a favor. He brings a crown and everything, and he thinks, oh man, I'm going to be rewarded for this. But yet David's like, you, you took out the king. And now remember, David's attitude, whenever he had a chance to take out Saul, was always... How could I do this against the Lord's anointed? How could I take him? Well, that's the Lord's job. David continually left it up to the Lord to deal with Saul. And yet this Malachite didn't. And so David has this Malachite put to death. And look at how David responds now. The, just this beautiful sentiment of David. It says in, in chapter 1, verse 19, The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Who clothed you in scarlet with luxury. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now you could understand David writing this about Jonathan, his beloved friend. But yet here he is writing about Saul. He's like, man, Saul was pleasant. 
Saul was beautiful. This is amazing that he would do that. It seems like a bit of a stretch, but I believe David recognized that though Saul was more an irritant than an inspiration, he could see that God used this man to really prepare him for the throne and to learn to trust in the Lord. And so David now in his death is able to honor this man. He honored him while he was living. And now even in Saul's death, David is, is honoring this man. Are there irritants in your life? I think we need to look at that and think, you know, what do we have that oftentimes rub us the wrong way? How do you respond to that? Because like David here, who had this irritant in his life, and yet he knew what God was doing through it, perhaps these are the means in your life, the irritants, the things that bother you, that that God is using to refine your life and prepare you for greater things that he has planned for you. Like David, don't be quick to cut them down. And take matters in your own hands. But rather, let these things be that which will grow you, humble you, keep you trusting in the Lord. The last part of verse 21 of chapter 1, we didn't read it, but the last part of verse 21 says, The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Now that's interesting. In that day, what they would do, they would they would put oil on their shield. Because that way, if there was a, you know, an, an archer releasing the arrow and that arrow kind of came at you it would just sort of you know slide off in a sense it wouldn't have anything to really grab a hold of so it was that kind of reflective sort of a thing that they would put on the shield it wouldn't the arrow wouldn't grip it would just kind of you know reflect off now it's interesting because the oil now you know becomes really a picture of the holy spirit as well in the bible and and how saul had not been walking in that anointing in a in a general sense And Saul did much more, or or he became much more susceptible and vulnerable to the arrows of the enemy. And I think, again, for us, how that relates, how that connects. Where if we're not walking in the flow of the, the energy of the Holy Spirit, the strength of the Holy Spirit, how much more we become susceptible to those fiery darts of the enemy that Ephesians tells us the the enemy is throwing our way how we need to be filled with and empowered by the holy spirit that those things don't stick or stay or have its way in our lives well chapter two now david is anointed publicly remember he was anointed once by samuel already in a private affair at his home but now he's anointed publicly but only by the tribe of judah there's some civil unrest that's taking place right now in Israel. Now that Saul has passed away, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is still on the scene. We don't know why he's not in the battle with his other sons, because it tells us at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul and his sons died. But Ishbosheth wasn't there. So he's still around. And Abner, who was Saul's cousin and general of the army, is looking to have Ishbosheth be the man to carry on the throne that's been left vacant by Saul. So Ishbosheth, now he's crowned king over the rest of Israel, and the kingdom is kind of divided temporarily. And so what happens one day, these two sides kind of go out, and they're on opposite sides of this pond, you know. And so Abner is speaking out to Joab, the commander of David's army, and they're saying, hey, why don't we send some of our chief men to go and battle it out? And so they pick 12 of the choicest men. They go into battle, and they just, everybody's killed. And then it's kind of like a bench-clearing brawl ensues, and everybody gets into the action, and they all start battling these two sides now. And David's army prevails. 
And then in chapter 3, we see that the house of David is just getting stronger while the house of Saul was weakening. Now, one thing that's not going to go very well for David is that he begins to indulge in extra marriages. Because in chapter 3, verse 2, we see that sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Kiliad by Abigail. The third, um, Absalom, who's the, the daughter of Talmai. Verse 4. The fourth is Adonijah, the son of Haggad. And the sixth is, is Ithraim. Or sorry, I missed the fifth one there. Shef, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. My point is this. David's got a lot of wives going on now at this point, all right? He's, you know, barely been made king, and now all of a sudden he's starting to accumulate a few different wives here. And we're going to see that this is not going to bode well for David. This is going to be an area of his life that is going to be a distraction for him, as we'll see as we move along. But remember, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, God's word, God's law was that the kings were not to multiply for themselves many wives. And so here's David now doing just that. And to keep things moving along now, Abner has a falling out with Ishbosheth. He's the guy that really caused Ishbosheth to come on the throne there. And, and so he has a falling out with him. Abner now allies himself with David, which makes Joab a little uneasy. Joab's the commander of David's army. So Joab's going, I don't know about this Abner guy getting a little bit close to you, David. And so Joab goes out and he kills Abner. And then Ishbosheth gets murdered. So now, really, the way is just opened up now for David to be the sole king of Israel. That leads us to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 with me. Verse 1. Says this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. All right. So his reign started as just kind of being over in Hebron in the southern region, seven years. And now he's, the kingdom is unified, all right? And so for 40 years now, in total, his, his reign was. And so David's now anointed a third time, and this time it's by all of Israel. In other words, everyone is recognizing now David as being their king. They're all family. They're saying, listen, we are your bone and flesh. We're together in this. We're family. We're together. We're not divided any longer. And so they're all basically saying and stating there's no need for any in-house fighting anymore. So David becomes their king, reigns for 40 years and all, and he goes down as Israel's greatest king. Now, if you have a king, you need to have a, a castle. You need to have a central place where you are making kind of your headquarters a, a home base of sorts. And so David has his eye on Jerusalem. Up until this point, Jerusalem has not been captured by Israel. It's still in occupation by a leftover tribe from Canaan, the Jebusites. 
they're still occupying it. Now, this was a very formidable place. It was a desirable place because Jerusalem was an ideal setup. It was built on a natural fortification of a hilltop fed by the waters of the Gihon Springs. And so it just became a great base where valley all around it, you could just kind of spy out what's going on. It was very easily defendable. And so it was a very um, desirable place. All right. And it's and that's very evident because here's this tribe now, the Jebusites, that have been occupying it all this time when Israel's already gone out, basically taken over all the rest of the land, but Jerusalem they haven't been able to take. Up until now, David comes into power, right? So the inhabitants, they're uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they're really confident. You know, they're thinking, David, you and your men are gonna go up against us? And they start kind of taunting them. They start kind of saying, like, even our lame and our blind, they're going to defend this place. That's all we need to rely on. You are not going to be able to do anything. Our lame and our blind are going to be the ones that are going to keep you at bay. That's kind of how confident they are in this. Well, that got David kind of riled up. And they got themselves in and they defeated the city. And Jerusalem has to this day been one of the most important cities in the world. It continues to be the geographical heartbeat for the Jewish people. Now, in chapter 6, we see David now that he's got his headquarters. He's got the throne. He's desiring now to bring the Ark of the Covenant in. All right? And again, remember that had in First Samuel been captured by the Philistines? And they had a great plague come upon them. They're like, we got to get rid of this thing. This is, and they're passing it on to each different cities in Philistine territory. And finally, it ends up in the home of an, an Israelite by the name of Abinadab. And so David seeks to have the ark brought now from the house of Abinadab and brought to Jerusalem. And again, make it kind of that central place of, uh, of worship to gather before the Lord. Because the ark of the covenant was really, you know, important. This is the place that God says, it's here on, the, on that mercy seat of the ark of the covenant that I will meet with you. There's a place that atonement was made for their sins. So it was a very central figure. It was something that really... Uh, identified the, the presence of God among his people. So they're desiring to, to bring it in. So David is set on doing, doing all this, but he goes about doing this, a right thing, but he goes about doing it the wrong way. It's never a good formula for success. Look at what we see in chapter 6, verse 3. We read this. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. Now, the Philistines had carried the ark this way. They put it on a cart. And they did it without any repercussions. So David must have thought, this is the way to do it. It's an efficient way to do it. We don't need to carry it. We don't need to weigh ourselves down. We go along. We put it on a cart. We'll just roll this bad boy right back to Jerusalem. Right? And no one is seeking the Lord on this. We don't hear David seeking the Lord saying, God, how should we go about doing this? They just decide this is a newer and better way of doing things. But as we'll see... When we fail to follow God's word and God's prescribed way of carrying out what he wants us to do, well, it's going to be a very bumpy way for us. Look at what we read in verse 6. And when they came to 
Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his heir, and he died there by the ark of God. At first glance, we look at the situation, and we can tend to think, God, what are, you, what are you doing? Aren't you overacting a little bit here? He was just trying to help. He was just trying to stabilize the ark because we wouldn't want that thing to fall on the ground. Lord, why would you take this man out? That seems like a bit of a harsh overreaction. But now going back into the word, we are reminded that nobody was to touch the ark. Nobody was to touch the ark. It tells us in Numbers chapter 4 verse 15, they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. Don't touch any holy thing. Anything that's been set apart for the work of the Lord, especially the Ark of the Covenant, probably the, mo- the most holy thing. Don't touch it lest you die. God warned them not to do that. It's the most holy vessel set apart for the Lord and it, and it can't be defiled by human contact. Uzzah must have thought it would be more detrimental to have it fall on the ground, no doubt. Or perhaps he didn't want to see the the... the um, the Ark of the Covenant get damaged in any way. Either way, whatever good his motive might have been, if it's not in line with the word of God, it profits nothing. The end does not justify the means. You see, the Ark of the Covenant, they had little rings put in the corners of it where poles were to be slid through. Only the, the Levites and a certain uh, family of the Levites, the Kohathites, I believe it was, only they were to carry it. And they weren't to touch it. They were to put poles through and, and hoist it up on the shoulders and have it carried without any human contact on the Ark of the Covenant. This is the way that God had prescribed for it to be done. But yet now they're just taking matters in their own hands thinking, ah, that's how it used to be done. But we got a new and improved way of doing it. And, and a life perished because they didn't seek the Lord. So David now, things just stop. They come to a halt. They're like, okay. We recognize, all right, we've, you know, done this the wrong way. So David regroups, he seeks the Lord, and he consults the word. And now they see this is the way we're to do it. And they're ready to do things properly. And now David takes even greater precaution in carrying on this ark by taking every, every six paces, he would stop and sacrifice an animal. That would end up being a very long journey now, right? Every six paces, they stop and they sacrifice to the Lord just to say, God, we just want to do this. We want to honor you in this. And, and David even had a bit of a Holy Ghost hoedown going on as the ark was being brought in. And he begins just to dance, you know, before the Lord. And it tells us that Michael is kind of his wife, is looking and it says that she saw him do this. and says that she despised him in his heart. Look at chapter 6, verse 22 to 23. Here's David's response to her. She's not happy about this. Verse 16, at the end of verse 16, we see that Michael despised him in her, in her heart because of what he was doing. She thought, ah, oh, David, you're making yourself look like a fool. My, she's probably thinking, my father would never have done that. Remember that Saul's daughter, right? My father would never have acted so foolishly. But here's what David says in verse 22 of chapter 6. He says, listen. I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. David's basically saying, listen, I will do whatever it takes for me to glorify the Lord. If it makes me look foolish, 
I'm willing to go for it. I, I, I don't mind being humble in my own sight. I'm going to become even more undignified. I don't want to be held back in any way of just glorifying God. But Michael, his wife, she's, she's becoming a bit of a sourpuss in this. She didn't want to take part in praise. She only wanted to protest. She wanted to object rather than worship. And look where it got her. The end of the chapter says that she was barren to the day that she died. It left her in a barren place. You know, it's that way for some who choose to walk around complaining and objecting and despising things that people are doing for the Lord rather than just taking it to the Lord and simply praising Him through it all. You know, there's something wonderfully freeing and helpful when we just stop and worship God. We get our eyes off of our cares and onto the one who does care. Worship becomes so instrumental in us just having joy having the 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 problems and the cares of this world the the stress just begin to roll off because we're getting our focus back on the one who's holding it all together and worship becomes very instrumental in that and yet if we fail to do that you may discover yourself in a place of barrenness where there's just a a lack of life and joy flowing through you be a worshiper and allow your heart to be filled with gratitude of God rather than grumpiness and grumbling before God. Well, chapter 7 is a big one here. All right. It's God's covenant with David. It's the Davidic covenant, as, as you've heard it said before. David, he's hanging out with Nathan the prophet. And, and, and they're just sharing with one another. They're just chatting, you know, from the heart. And David, he sees the nice dwelling that he's got. He's got a... Uh, a, a palace built from a great home, but he sees that the ark of God is just dwelling inside a tent. So he starts thinking it's time to build a temple for God. And at first Nathan is like, hey, that sounds good to me. Do whatever's in your heart. But that night now God comes and he speaks to Nathan. He says, Nathan, David is not the man to do that. Oh, listen, I will honor him and I'm going to establish his kingdom, but he's not the guy to do this work here. David's not going to build him a house, but God is going to make a great house from David, a great family line. Here's what he says here, chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. These verses here make up the Davidic covenant, which refers to the throne of David that would be established forever. That's what God is wanting to relay to David. David, you're not going to build a house for me. Your, your son's going to do it. But here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make your name an, an extended name. And, and from you, I'm going to establish a kingdom without end. David's son will succeed him on the throne. It'll be the first time that Israel will have a hereditary monarchy. And this will be sustained for more than four centuries. It'll eventually 
stop from a human perspective um, due to sin and corruption by the man, the king, Jehoiakim, a descendant of David, who there was this curse pronounced upon that, that there will no longer be a a seed, a son of Jehoiakim that will be on the throne. So for centuries, the Jews are wondering, well, how is this kingdom going to be established then? How is this promise of God going to be fulfilled if now there's this curse upon a descendant of David where no longer will there be a son of David on the throne? Does that mean that God's word has failed? Well, not at all, because this covenant also has a dual fulfillment through Jesus Christ. It'll be through Jesus that the throne of David will continue forever. It's interesting that the two family lines that we have of Jesus, one in Matthew, one in Luke, one of those lines traces it through Mary and the other through Joseph. So Jesus becomes uh, an, an heir to the throne through Joseph, in a sense, in a, in a royal way, but through the bloodline of, of Mary. He is a family member of David. So God bypasses it, in a sense, through this way. There's two lines given in the Gospels there. But the result is that God has set up now, through this Davidic covenant, that one is going to come. That's going to establish the kingdom forever, and it's going to be fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene oftentimes, that title that he has is the son of David. And so Jesus fulfills that. Tells us in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. Great verse to read this time of year. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment. And justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And Luke chapter 1 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here's this fulfillment now of what God has spoken here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, an important chapter. Well, in chapters 8 to 10, we see a few exploits of David as he consolidates the kingdom and battles neighboring enemies. But chapter 9 gives us a really wonderful story of grace and kindness. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9 verse 3, Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show my show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Moving down to verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, that son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, yeah, here's your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And then verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem. For he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both his feet. Hey, listen, three things that stand out in this passage, at least to me. First of all, the reason of God's grace. 
The reason we receive God's grace is simply because of Jesus. Notice it says there that, I'm going to show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. There in verse 7. David did this because of another. God shows us grace because of what Jesus has done for us. He was blessed not because of who he was, but because of another. We receive God's blessing not because of who we are, but because of Jesus. How we need to continually be thankful and praising Jesus for all that he's done for us. Secondly, our response to God's grace. Notice what Mephibosheth does. He comes in in humility. He sees he's undeserving. Why would you do this? Look upon me, uh, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I. He comes and he falls down before David. There's humility there on the part of Mephibosheth. And in the same way, we have to recognize we are nothing apart from Christ. We have nothing apart from Christ. Everything we have, we owe to Jesus. How we need to walk in that humility and gratitude. Number three, we see the result of God's grace. And I love this. Intimate fellowship. And he becomes a part of now David's family. He becomes part of the family just like us. We now... Because of God's grace, we enjoy intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. We become children of God. We don't deserve any of that. But Mephibosheth, he sits at the king's table now forever, though he was lame in both his feet. Oh, I think that's a good picture of us, isn't it? How lame we were, unable to help ourselves, unable to lift ourselves up and really take any action in this. But yet God's done it all. He's brought us in. He sits us at the table of the Lord where we get to enjoy fellowship with him now. Undeserving people. And yet by God's grace, we have gained everything. Oh, it's a great story here and and great application. I think we need to take into our own lives through that story. Well, these are the triumphs that we see of David. Chapters 1 to 10 where David is is on the move and great things are taking place. But now we begin to look at some of the troubles of David. Chapter 11 starts right here. As we move to this next section, starting in chapter 11, it's as though David kind of files for chapter 11, spiritually speaking. Here's a definition of chapter 11. A debtor, business individual or partnership. A debtor is declared bankrupt, but is allowed reorganization to attempt debt repayment. Now, David truly is hit at an all-time low here, but God will allow him to continue on because David's a man that has a repentant heart. It's a man with a heart after God. And it'll be a time where David can continue to be used of the Lord. Chapter 11, we see the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And look at some of the stages that led to this fall. Verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Just like we have, you know, hockey season, football season, certain periods of the year. Well, they would have seasons where they do battle. Where the conditions were profitable and good for that. And so it's a season where they'd be going to battle. The kings would be leading the way. But here now, David remains back in Jerusalem. David, in other words, is getting a little comfortable, a little idle and isn't it so for us that when we begin to get a little bit idle we take the foot off the gas we start to get a little comfortable or complacent that we become a lot more susceptible or vulnerable to the enemy and to sin what's what we're going to see happening with david look at this then it happened verse two one evening that david arose from his bed 
and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now keep in mind in this day, rooftops were like their patios. This isn't David being some, you know, kind of perv lurking up on the roof, you know, trying to spy on somebody. This is the natural thing for people to do hanging out there, you know, in the patio in the cool of the night. It's like, oh, this is refreshing. He has some fresh air. And so he's on the patio. And lo and behold, he sees someone out there bathing. Now, it says that he saw a woman bathing. And then it says that she was beautiful to behold. So look at the stages in a sense here. The first look that David had, he saw someone. Well, that's a look that we can't help oftentimes. You're just out there all of a sudden, what? what is, oh, man. But the second, third, eighth, ninth look, that's on you. You see, you've got to make every attempt to say, I've just seen something I shouldn't be seen. I've got to get away from here. See, those same stairs that took David up to the rooftop are the same stairs that were right there, ready to take him back down, if he so took him. But it seems that he begins to behold this woman, gaze upon her, see that this is a beautiful woman. He starts to identify her a little bit more. And you see, temptation is something that is not uncommon. We're all going to see things that can be quick temptation, but... Understand what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, that God's given us a way of escape. There's always a way out, but we've got to be active to take it. God will provide that, but he's not going to kick you through that door of escape. You've got to realize, first look, oh, okay, i gotta, I got to get out of here. It's time to move on. I don't want to sit here and dwell on that, but it seems that's what David did. And then... Not only is David idle, not only is David now beginning to kind of dwell upon this woman, but now David takes it one step further. And he seeks this woman out. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David starts to inquire about her, to seek her out. And then, in verse 4, then David sent messengers that took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. David entered into an impure relationship with her. He took her as his own. And then David tries covering up this sin. Look at verse 8. And David said to Uriah, so he calls, let me just stop. He calls Uriah back from the battlefield, because Uriah is an upright man. He's in battle. And so David sends for Uriah to come home. And what David's trying to do, he's trying to have Uriah come back home and, and, and be with his wife. So that now the pregnancy will be kind of blamed on Uriah. And David's kind of off the hook, right? They didn't have Maury Povich in that day doing the DNA test and revealing who the real father is, right? So David's thinking, oh, he's going to know. I'm going to have Uriah come back, be with Bathsheba. And then she'll be pregnant because he knows she's pregnant. And, and now we'll say, oh, Uriah, congratulations. It's your child. And David's thinking, this will be a cover-up. I'll be off the hook. And so David's even like, you know, kind of sending Uriah home with, with some food. He's got the flowers out. He's probably gone and lit candles in the home already. Just really trying to make this a romantic evening for Uriah. But Uriah is an upright man. He's thinking, 
How can I go and enjoy the luxuries of being with my wife when my men are out in battle? So Uriah doesn't even go into the bedroom. He sleeps on his own. And David's like, what? You've done that? And then David's sin led to a greater sin because now he puts Uriah out on the front lines of battle so that he would be killed. Look at verse 15. David wrote this letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Oh, just how sin begins to form this web of deceit and just you get further stuck and enmeshed in it. And David is, you're seeing these stages where it just goes from bad to worse. He's not at all looking to say, I got to come clean. I got to repent. I got to, I got to get right. He keeps trying to just keep adding to it, trying to cover it up. So Uriah is gone now. David marries Bathsheba. And all seems to be going well, but though we may think we can hide these things and put on a good front, these things are not hidden. God says, look at the end of chapter 11 and the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, God sees God's taken account of everything. And how so often we can think, oh man, I've done something wrong. Well, okay, maybe nobody knows about it. I mean, just try to cover this up, cover it up. And yet that's the, never the way of, of healing and being set free from these things. David just keeps getting himself further entwined in this mess. It was wrong and David was carrying around this guilt and it was not pleasant as we'll see upcoming. So chapter 12 now, God brings Nathan along to confront David on this issue. And you know the story, Nathan begins to share his parable with David about a rich man and a poor man. And a visitor comes into town and the rich man's like, oh, I want to entertain this, this, this traveler, this stranger. And this rich man's got everything he needs, but he goes to the poor man, takes this lamb of the poor man and slaughters it to provide a feast for the traveler. And this poor man is just broken over this rich man taking what was his when he didn't have much to begin with. And David is just indignant. He just, he just all of a sudden is like filled with rage. He's like, oh my goodness, that man should be killed and what he's taken should be, should be paid back fourfold. David is just like, he sees the sin and it's so easy for us, isn't it? Where we can see the sin and the wrongdoing in others a whole lot more than we can see it in our own self. David is a, is a great picture of that. He's like so filled with, with, with just anger about this. Like that is just, how can somebody do that? And yet Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. <laughs> you are that man, David. You're the one that's done this. You took from somebody Uriah. You took what was his. And then you ended up having him killed. And David, when he realizes that, he is just struck down. He's just grieved and he's sorrowful but he's also repentant look at verse 10 we read this now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife thus says the Lord behold 
I'll raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Now, David, like I said, he did repent when he realizes I'm the guy. I'm the jerk. I'm the fool that did this. He repented. And God is gracious to forgive him. But understand, there were consequences from that sin. And we get some good insight in a psalm that David wrote regarding this whole encounter. It tells us in Psalm 32, verse 105. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent... My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was tuned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So David, he realizes how blessed it is when we're forgiven. But in order for us to be forgiven, we've got to be willing to walk in honesty and repentance and and confess these things to the lord confess it to the lord confess it to others so that we can be set free from these things god desires to do that and when david this period of time where he's like holding it all in he's like okay your eyes are the picture now that she was my wife everything will just be fine now he was holding it all in but what does it say oh man my my bones Grew old through my groaning all the day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. David was experiencing this chastening of the Lord. Conviction. And it was heavy. And he just felt like, man, I'm just, I'm just feeling crippled under the, the weight of this. And that's exactly what happens if we continue in sin and not take it to the Lord and say, God, oh, I need repentance. I need to get right with you about these things. It just has a way of crippling us and weighing us down. God doesn't desire that for us. He wants to set you free, but that comes through repentance, confession, and allowing him to forgive. Well, as we read there in, in 2 Samuel 12, there's going to be some consequences now. It says your, your family, your own home is going to be in, in a bit of turmoil. The trouble begins pretty quick in his house. His child born to Bathsheba dies, but the Lord so wonderfully and graciously gives them another child. A prominent child, Solomon. But his older kids, they're getting into some serious mischief. His eldest son, Amnon, all right, he had a real, you know, crush on, a a lust for his half-sister, Tamar. And he wanted her really bad. And she would never give in to his advances. And so finally, somebody says, why don't you pretend you're sick? And I'll have her bring some goods to you to help you. And then you can, you know, take her. And so... This happens. He, he fakes his sickness. Tamar comes in to, to just kind of tend to him and help him. And he, he forces himself upon her. He rapes her. And such a, 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 a tragedy takes place. Now the worst part of that is that David doesn't deal with this mess as he should. Perhaps he thought his own sin was too similar. And that kind of disqualified him from disciplining Adam, but it's because of his own sin and experience that he's able to speak into that situation and bring counsel and help. But he doesn't say anything. He doesn't treat this. He doesn't deal with that or discipline it. But Absalom, now Absalom is David's other son, and he's the 
the full-blooded brother of Tamar. Now he hears about all this and he takes matters in his own hands and he eventually kills Amnon at a family feast that David wasn't present at. And then Absalom goes to, to Geshur in Syria to escape any kind of judgment. So Absalom takes matters in his own hands. He, he flees away. And then in chapter 14 now, we see David just kind of recovering over the loss of Amnon. But now he's grieving over the departure of Absalom. David has just seen his family just becoming so dysfunctional, falling apart. And he's just grieving over these things. So Joab now, again, a general of David of his army, he sends for Absalom to come back. He sends someone to get Absalom from Syria and Absalom returns to Jerusalem. But here's the crazy thing. David's like, he can come back, but he can't see me. So David is kind of like showing forgiveness, but it's kind of part. It's kind of half forgiveness because David's not, not allowing Absalom to come and have any face time with him to really kind of, you know, reconcile matters. And so for two years now, Absalom's hanging in Jerusalem without seeing his father. And Absalom's thinking, this isn't right. This isn't good. And so this all sets up now kind of for this treason of Absalom. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Verse 2, now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So as Absalom worked outside the palace, he was turning the hearts of the people so he could eventually overtake the palace and the throne from David was his desire. His plans were to get rid of David and occupy the throne, becoming Israel's new king. So David got word of this, and he ends up, now David ends up fleeing Jerusalem. He's thinking the people now are behind Absalom. They're not for me. They're going to come at me. So David ends up fleeing, getting out of Dodge. He would rather get out of there than stick around and fight. David, I think, is showing a bit of care for the city and for the people because he doesn't want to see others brought into a potential crossfires now of this family dysfunction and, and struggle that's going on. He's wanting everybody to be kept kind of safe. So David just gets out of there rather than stick around and fight this out. So Absalom starts getting some counsel from a couple of David's counselors. First one is Ahithophel. And Ahithophel tells Absalom, listen, it says chapter 17, verse 1 to 3. Basically, Ahithophel's counsel is that, listen, I'm going to muster up, you know, 12,000 men. And we're going to pursue David tonight. We're going to go after him. And we'll catch him when he's weak and tired. And then I'll take him out. I'll lead the rest of the men, but I'll take out David. So Absalom's going, hey, that's some good counsel. 
That sounds like a good plan. But then he goes, well, we've also got Hushai, the other counselor. Let's hear what he has to say. Now, Hushai, he's a man that's loyal to David. He's kind of on David's side. So he tells Absalom, listen, Ahithophel's advice, nah, it's not really good at this time. So Hushai goes on to say, David and his men, they're, they're crafty, they're strong, and they're enraged at this time. Let them cool down a little bit. We'll gather all of Israel together, not just 12,000. We'll take all of Israel and we'll come to him in a place where he may be easily found and easily captured. And then we'll not only take David out, but we'll take everybody out. This is Hushai's counsel. But this was all simply counsel to help David out and buy him some time. Notice what we read in verse 14. So Absalom, and this is chapter 17, verse 14. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord, check this out now, chapter 17, verse 14. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. The Lord desired to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel. Notice this, David is on the run. He's probably feeling like he's losing the grip to the throne. But God here is at work in a way that's unbeknownst to David. David doesn't realize what God is doing behind the scenes here. It's these sorts of things that need to strengthen our trust in the Lord and recognize that God is sovereign, that God is at work and he's ruling in all things to accomplish his plans. Even when we're not aware, because David's on the run, but he, he didn't need to plan and plot how to defeat the enemy. God had that taken care of already. And David has seen it before, hasn't he? When Saul's been on the run after David, where David's been hiding out, and David had opportunity to take out Saul, but every time God just brought them into a position where God was clearly in control, leading it where Saul would, in such situations, go and relieve himself in a cave that just so happened to be the cave that David was hiding out with. And David was able to reveal to Saul, Saul, I could have taken you down right there, but I didn't. David saw that God was in control and he's able to work things out in a way that are so much better than what we could ever do. And so for us, we need to recognize, listen, God is at work here. His purpose was to bring about the end of Absalom here. God's working. David didn't have to try to manipulate this or control it because God's in control. He's sovereign. So even in times of turmoil, let us trust in the Lord and accept what he's doing. Because though we may not always see it in the immediate, we can put our faith in the fact that God is at work. So David, what he does now, he, he divides up his troops there into three different groups. Chapter 18 brings us that now. And he divides up his, group, uh, his troops into three groups. And they go out against Absalom and his men. And David's army is overtaking Absalom's army. Then something, you know, almost humorous takes place here. Verse 9 of chapter 18. Verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick bows of a great terebinth tree. And his head got caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. So he's just riding the mule. All of a sudden, his head got caught in the branches. And the mule just keeps going and he's left hanging there. He's stuck in, a, in sorts here. Now it tells us in 
in Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, that there was nobody praised as much as Absalom for his good looks from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I mean, I can totally relate to that. But, but Absalom was a man that was very beautiful, that people just were like, man, there's nobody like him. There's nobody like this guy. And it says there in chapter 14, verse 26, that every year he would cut his hair because it weighed heavy on him. So he just had this incredible mane, you know, that the women would just, you know, oh, look at that, just be blowing in the wind, you know. And he's just this handsome man, right? He would cut his hair every year because it was just so heavy. He'd weighed and, and, and it was just this sight. But in this very, you know, attribute of Absalom that, Perhaps he took a lot of pride in and glory in, ended up kind of being his downfall. It seems evident that maybe it was this great mane of his that just caught the branches and left him hanging there between heaven and earth, right? Very interesting. And so what was something that became very, you know, perhaps his glory ended up becoming his downfall. So Joab comes along and he hears about this and he ends up going after Absalom and he ends up killing Absalom as he's hanging from the tree. And now David returns to Jerusalem as the sole king. Absalom's taken out of the way. His army's kind of defeated. So now there's no more obstacles there for David. So David returns to Jerusalem, the sole king, but things are not entirely settled because there's friction between Judah and the ten tribes of Israel. They thought Judah had taken a more prominent place in kind of restoring king david and all of judas is kind of saying well listen it's because he's a he's a close relative of of ours right and so they're all just going we're all together in this but those 10 northern tribes are start starting to take some offense as to how judah is is handling david and a man named sheba who's a benjamite ends up leading a rebellion against judah well joab again all right here's joab He's a fierce man. I mean, this guy's just like, I'm not going to let anything get in the way. He goes in pursuit of Sheba. Joab was confronted by a woman then who thought Joab would, would destroy her city and the inhabitants of the city by, by going after Sheba who had taken refuge there. She's like, Joab, wait, stop. What are you doing? Look at what we read in verse uh, chapter 20, verse 21. Chapter 20, verse 1. 21, sorry. Verse 21 Chapter 20, that is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only and I'll depart from the city. This is Joab speaking to this woman who's like, Joab, stop. You're going to take us all out here. What is it you need? So he's just telling this woman, I just need this man, Sheba. So the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And this is an interesting fact. This is the origin of volleyball right here in the Bible. I don't think you knew that, but it had its start in the Bible. This head comes over the wall, and they start falling around a little bit. But here's the deal. The rebellion is squashed now, all right? She was taken down. The rebellion is squashed. But as we know, these these seeds of discord that have kind of taken place among the kingdom between these these northern tribes and that of Judah, they've kind of begun to set in and they're going to remain until Jeroboam comes on the scene and eventually leads the nation into a full-scale division where we end up after Solomon's reign, then Rehoboam, then Jeroboam comes on, divides the kingdom, 
where he had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But you see the kind of the root of that taking place here with this rebellion. Well, let's jump now to the last chapter. All right. And everybody said, amen. The last chapter, chapter 24. We're going to wrap up our study here. Here we see some grief and grace. Grief and grace in chapter 24. Look at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Now, interestingly, in the parallel account of this chapter, which we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we read that Satan moved David to take the census. Yet here in 2 Samuel 24, we read that it's God that kind of moved David against him. So was it God or was it Satan? The answer is yes. Yeah, (laughs) it's both. See, God is the one that allowed Satan to move David to do such a thing. Satan can't do anything without the Lord's approval. Understand that. We see that through the story of, uh, of, um, of Job, right? Where Satan comes on the scene there before God. And, and God's like letting Satan know, okay, well, here's what you can do. Do this, do this, but you can't do that. Satan can't do anything apart from the Lord's permission to do it. God's, however, not the author of evil, but he works through it. To accomplish his will. And, and that should really be a great assurance for all of us. Because it reminds us that, again, God's in control of all things. We're so quick to look at the negativity in our lives and say things like, Oh man, I'm just really under attack. The devil is just really working overtime on me right now. And what we need to see rather is that God is allowing it to further his appointed means in our lives. What is God desiring to do in my life? How is he wanting to refine me, shape me, challenge me, or change me through this situation? So it's God who is testing David here, but he's allowing Satan to be the tester. Now, what's so wrong with numbering the people? Why is this kind of a test? What's the deal here? We have a whole book in the Bible all about numbering, and that's the book of Numbers, right? So how is this a wrong thing? God had, had asked Moses to take a census of the people. So what's wrong with this here? Why is this an, an issue? Well, it would seem that David is being moved with pride on this one. He's being tempted by the enemy to act out in pride. In other words, he's looking to see what kind of an army that he has built up now and looking to number them so that his confidence can be in this rather than in the Lord. Moving along in pride. He wanted to boast in military numbers rather than boast in the Lord. So it's not what David did, but more so why he did it. That was the issue and that was wrong. Even Joab now, I mean, the end of verse 3, Joab is like, David, come on. Why would you want to do such a thing? Even Joab, who is not known for his spiritual prowess at all, he sees the foolishness of this. Well, David went and did this and there became a, a a great fall kind of from this in the in the nation. He realized his error. He repents of this, but again, not without some consequences. So God gave David three choices now. Look at verse 13. 
verse 13 of chapter 24. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, here's your options, basically. Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three day three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to, to the Lord who sent me. So do you want seven years of famine? Three months of fleeing from your enemies? Or three days of a plague in your own land? Well, David said to Gad in verse 14, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from that destruction and said to the angel who is destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Verse 18, let me read that one. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David was willing to kind of take the punishment of God for himself in an attempt to protect Israel. And that again just really kind of sets David apart as a selfless man here who has sought to trust God and honor God. And then now, through this decision, this plague comes out. The angel of the Lord is wiping out people, but then the Lord relents. And he has the angel of the Lord stop at this important piece of real estate, the, the threshing floor of Aruna. And David is instructed now to offer sacrifices there. So David wants to buy this from Aruna. To own this so that he can sacrifice to the Lord because he knows this is a significant place where God had stopped this plague. But Aruna, he wants to give this to David for free. He's like, David, you're the king. Let me honor you. Let me give this to you for free. Look at what we read in verse 24. But then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David... Brought the th- bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Here's another thing that set David apart as a man after God's own heart. It was his desire to give to God. Because I would have been tempted to say, free? Oh, how wonderful. Look at how the Lord is providing for me. I don't have to buy this thing. God's given it to me. But David's like, I want to use this for the Lord, and I don't want to use something for the Lord that doesn't require anything of me, that costs me nothing. He wanted to give and give to the Lord. He's not looking for a shortcut or a freebie. He wanted to give that which was costly, really an expression of saying, all that's mine is really yours, Lord. I want to honor you in it and through it. Are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to give all to the Lord? Or do we look to kind of give them the leftovers? Are we looking for an easy way out in these things? Listen, you'll never be sorry when you give your all to the Lord. And then upon this threshing floor, David began to offer up sacrifices. And this was an important piece of real estate, like I said, because this is Mount Moriah. This is the place that Abraham went and offered up his son Isaac. This is the place where Jesus would be crucified. It'll be the place where the temple would be built. 
David is beginning to make preparations now for his son, ultimately. First Chronicles 22, verse 1 says that David said, This is the house of the Lord, uh, of the Lord God, and this is the altar burnt offering for Israel. David's beginning to realize that this is the place that God has set apart now to be the house that my son will build, where the temple will sit. Where significant stuff has happened, the place where, again, Mount Moriah, where Jesus would be sacrificed. Listen, if you were to name two of David's greatest sins, you'd probably name this one and the sin with Bathsheba. Yet it's amazing that out of those things, God brought out the means to establish his temple. Solomon was born through Bathsheba, and he'd be the one that God would use to build the temple. And now through this trial, God establishes the place where the temple would be built. Listen, it's not an excuse to sin by any means. You don't look at this and go, well, if I do wrong, that's great. God will just turn it around and make good of it. All right, let's have at it. That's not an excuse for sin, but it does reveal the grace of God and how when we err and, as David did, turn to the Lord in repentance, well, God can bring blessing out of that brokenness. What a great way to end for us tonight. What a great reminder for us how we need to continue as David did. Be a man after God's own heart. Walk in repentance and know that, man, when we err, when we stumble, as we're going to do, let's take it to the Lord. Let's be a man after God's own heart. And see, give it over to the Lord and allow God to bring about, you know, his blessing from that, his good out of it, as God is able to do. This reminds us of that. So, Second, or Second Samuel, right there, in a flyby, in a nutshell. And uh, so, we'll end there. Let's pray, and then we'll get into some goodies. It's kind of late, isn't it? Oh, boy. Okay. We'll pray, but stick around, fellowship, have some goodies, and uh, yeah, we'll do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for our night tonight to gather together, to sing to you, Lord, to worship, and just to enjoy this time of fellowship, and more so to enjoy this time of just feeding around your word. And I pray that, Lord, though we've covered much, you would just take little things that we've looked at and just really apply them to our own lives, and that you would encourage us by it, challenge us, continue to do your work in us from it. And... uh Yeah, we just look forward to continuing on, just growing in you and growing in your word. And so bless this time now, we pray, a fellowship one with another, that we would just continue to encourage and equip one another here tonight. We pray in your name. Amen.